It is good to see you all here this morning. Thank you so much for being with us uh, today. Uh, uh, we are going to be continuing in our series, The Sermon on the Mount, which uh, if you have been with us this year, you know we've been kind of in and out of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you aren't familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, though, it is uh, found in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it is one big sermon that Jesus preached, and it's just awesome. I mean, the things that Jesus is able to cover in this sermon, how he does it, it's just, it's just masterful. And if you've been a part of our church here this year, and you haven't yet just sat down and read the Sermon on the Mount, I'd encourage you to do that sometime before the year is up, just to see, hey, how do all these things that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount that we've looked at this year, how do they all fit together? Because there's rhyme and reason behind where he puts things, and it's just, it's just amazing. But today we're going to look at two more sections in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're almost done with it. Like, we're, we've almost reached the end of our journey through it, and uh, we're going to be wrapping up that, or the Sermon on the Mount soon. And so today we just have two more, uh, two more spots to look at. And uh, the first part we're going to be looking at, I'm going to be honest, it is one of those passages that I think can be extremely comforting, but it can also be one of those passages that if we don't rightly understand it, it can be extremely frustrating. So we're going to dive in. We're in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 14 today. The first part is verses 7 to 12. If you have, if you have your Bible, feel free to open up to Matthew chapter 7, um, verses 7 to 12. Or if you uh, have a smartphone, you can go to our website, go to the follow along tab, and all the verses and the notes will be there today. But uh, here we go. This is Matthew Chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. And this is what it says. It says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. All right. So Jesus starts out with this famous uh, saying that perhaps you've heard before. It's ask, seek, and knock. And what is Jesus really teaching about here? Like, is he just saying, hey, just go ask someone a question, or hey, go look for something, or hey, go knock on your neighbor's door just randomly? Like, what is he talking about here? He's talking about prayer, all right? He's talking about communicating with our Heavenly Father. And Jesus, he's already taught on prayer already in the Sermon on the Mount. If you go back to chapter 6, there's the famous Lord's Prayer, which is our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we, we looked at that a number of weeks ago. And so Jesus, he's coming back, and he's bringing prayer back up. And so if Jesus is mentioning prayer again, uh, we better pay attention, because he's emphasizing it. And uh, Jesus, he, he tells us to ask, and to seek, and to knock. And I think these words are very intentional. There's kind of a, a progression in them. You know, someone could just stand there and just ask a question. But then when you seek, there's kind of intentionality in that, Right? You're no longer just standing there asking. You're now going out searching. And then the idea of knocking, you know, if we keep knocking, I, I don't know if you've ever had someone knock annoyingly on your door. They just keep knocking and knocking and knocking. And you're just like, 
oh, come on, like, just go away. I don't want to answer the door. But finally you get so fed up that they just keep knocking. You're like, all right, I'll just, I'll go answer the door. You know, there, there's persistency there. And so Jesus, these words, they, they, they call us into just openly, honestly asking, intentionally seeking, and persistently knocking. Like that's the way Jesus is describing our communication with our Heavenly Father. There's intentionality behind it. And it's not, it's not passive, or uh, it's not in the past tense where it's, Jesus isn't saying, hey, when you asked, or when you sought, or when you knocked, it's asking now and continuing to ask. It's seeking now and continuing to seek. It's knocking and just don't stop. Just keep knocking. There's this active idea in what Jesus is saying. And so that's the way Jesus is describing the way our communication with our Heavenly Father should be, to be honestly asking, intentionally seeking, and persistently knocking. And let's just step back. Is that the way that we would describe our communication with our Heavenly Father? Is that how, when we step back and look back over this past week, was there intentionality in it? Was there a persistency in it? Was there just an open and honest just asking? Or were we caught up in life so much that we, oh yeah, I forgot to pray today, or I prayed at the traditional times, but I, I didn't really have communication with my Father, because that's what Jesus is, is getting at. But then look at the outcomes of, of what Jesus says. And this is where I think this passage can, can get frustrating for people, because it says, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened. The, the outcome of these of these actions of communicating with our Father in this way is what? That we'll receive what we ask for, that we will that the doors will be flung open. And that sounds awesome, right? Now, for some of us hearing this verse, I'm sure there's a couple different responses in the room. Maybe one response in the room is Man, I've never heard this. I'm going to go home and I'm going to write out a list and I'm just going to start asking and asking. And man, I'm going to get everything I asked for. And good thing Christmas is coming. And like, man, this is a perfect time to ask, seek, and knock. Like, maybe that's one of the responses in the room. But maybe a different response is maybe some of us are starting to play this out in our mind. Like, how does this communication thing with God actually work? I mean, he tells me to ask, he tells me to seek, and he tells me to knock. Um, but isn't he uh, God? So maybe, maybe we're going down some of these intellectual rabbit holes of like, well, if God is sovereign, like why do I actually have to ask for things if he already knows what, I'm, what I need? And in chapter 6, before Jesus goes through the Lord's Prayer, he says that God already knows what we need. And then he tells us to ask and pray. And so maybe some of us are going down these intellectual rabbit holes of what does it mean for me to have like freedom to ask for God when he already knows what I need. But so why do I have to ask? Because it doesn't like, and we're just, it just gets jumbled in our head. That for me can happen where I start playing this like, well, I just start thinking and all the rabbit holes just appear and it, it gets frustrating. So maybe that's some of our responses here in the room to this verse that we're just frustrated because it, it doesn't make sense and then for others of us maybe we're frustrated because it doesn't make sense when we examine what jesus says and we compare it to our life and we say jesus has to ask to seek and to knock and we'll receive and we will find and the door will be open but then i look at my life i've done these things and 
what happened? Why wasn't the door opened? I thought I was asking for good things. I thought I was asking for right things. You know, maybe some of us in here, we've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, and we know, we know like, oh, yeah, I, I, there's certain things that, like, that would be selfish of me to ask for, so I'm not going to ask for that. But, but maybe we're, we're asking for good things, so why isn't he answering? It seems like he's saying he will always answer. And just being honest, I can come to this passage very easily and look back at my life. And it's like, Lord, I thought I asked. Why, why didn't I receive? I thought I knocked and, and I was knocking persistently for something good. Where, where were you? And so a passage like this, I think, can be, can be frustrating for, for people. But that's why I think we need to move from verses 7 to 8, which is where Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock. And we need to look at the rest of this passage, because I believe Jesus is inviting us into something. I think he's inviting us into the reality of what this relationship with God is actually meant to be. All right? And in verses 9 to 11, it says this, Which of you, if your sons asks for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I picture Jesus teaching this for the first time. He's, he's talking to a crowd, and there would have been a crowd of, full of Lots of people. There would have been um, Romans. There would have been Jews. There would have been men. There would have been women. There would have been uh, fathers. There would have been mothers. There would have been all sorts of people in this crowd. And when Jesus, he's talking to the crowd, and he's wanting a response from them. All right? Jesus asks, if your son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? Like, think of how crazy that is. Like, imagine Jesus asking that, and all the fathers in the, in, in the crowd are like, uh, no. Like, like they wouldn't do that. Like, if a, if a child came up to their father and asked for food, and a father handed them a stone, that would be cruel. That would not be what they should do. And so the answer is, uh, of course we wouldn't give them a stone. Or the second question, it's just another crazy question. If they ask for fish, will you give them a snake? Well, of course not. And so Jesus is inviting us into this. And then he says, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven could give good gifts to those who ask him? So Jesus is trying to make a point. He's, he's bringing us in to this reality that like, hey, if we as sinful human beings know the difference between a good gift and a bad gift or like a gift that my child might need versus like a cruel and unusual thing like a stone or a snake when they ask for bread or fish like if we as sinful fallen people know that that's like a, those are no-brainer questions then of course the god of the universe knows that too and so Jesus is helping us process, I think, the different responses we can have to this reality of asking and seeking and knocking by making it very clear that, like, hey, God knows what he's doing. He's a good and a perfect father. And Jesus, he invites us into this imagery of a father and his children. And I believe that a passage like this in Scripture, it's something that we're, we're supposed to take and we're supposed to sit and we're supposed to think about. You know, there's, there's some passages in Scripture that are kind of more straightforward, more black and white. Well, 
there's a lot of passages in Scripture where we have to just think and process it a little more. Because I think Jesus is inviting us into this father-child imagery of like, hey, this is what your relationship with God is actually like. It's like a good father to his children. And um, I'm, I'm not a father yet, but uh, I had a dad, or I have a dad, and he, he was a good father. I grew up um, with, with a good father, and I know that's not the experience everyone has had. And so this idea of God as our Heavenly Father can be a challenging thing, depending on what your father relationship has been like. But God is our perfect father. And uh, my father was not perfect, but uh, I remember growing up that there were things I could ask dad for, and I knew 99.9% chance that dad's going to say yes to this. See, my dad, he's a big reader. He loves books. And so I knew if I asked dad for a book, he's always going to say yes, because that was something he wanted to instill into his children, a love of reading and learning and whatnot. So I can't remember one time I went to dad and said, hey, dad, I'd like this book. And he was like, nope. Like he would, all right, he'd get his laptop and he'd like start ordering it like before I could stop asking him for it. Like that's how much he wanted to give to me. He was generous in that, in that uh, with, with books because he loved them and he wanted his children to love them. But there were other things that I knew if I went to dad and asked about this, it was like, maybe I should go ask mom for this. Because it was like, I don't know if dad's going to say yes. And so I had to be, figure out like, hmm, what should I ask dad for? What shouldn't I ask dad for? But my dad didn't always say yes to things because he knew what was better for me than I often thought I knew. I often thought, oh, I need this. This is what I need. But my dad, being the older, wiser one, knew like, you actually don't need that, Andrew. And so there are times he would say no. Um, my brother and his wife, they have a little boy named Levi. And one of his favorite things in the world is chocolate. And he calls it chalky. And it is so incredibly adorable. He'll walk around and go, chalky, chalky, chalky. And it's just like, oh, Levi, I, I love you. And uh, he asked for chalky. And there are times where my brother and his wife are like, yes, Levi, let's have chalky. Like, this is awesome. Because they're generous, loving parents, and they want to bless their kids. Their posture is, Levi wants chalky? Let's give it to him. It's dessert time? Yeah, it's chalky time. And so they have chalky. Then there are other times where Levi wakes up in the morning or just ate a big plate of chalky, and he keeps asking, chalky, chalky, chalky. And they say, no, Levi, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have that now. Like, no, we'll have to wait till tomorrow because you've already had too much chalky or whatnot. And then Levi gets upset because he wants Chalky and he knows what's best for him, right? Yeah, sure he does. Yeah, he thinks he does. But mom and dad know actually what's better for him because they're the older, the wiser ones. They can see the cause and effect of like, oh, if Levi eats Chalky all his life, that's not going to be good. Like it's going to lead to some health issues. Like this isn't, this isn't good. And so because they're good parents, they say no to Chalky at times. And I believe Jesus is inviting us into that kind of imagery with our Heavenly Father. Where our Heavenly Father is the kind of Father where we can ask, we can seek, we can knock. Because His posture is, I love you, I want to be generous, and I want to bless you, and I want to be there for you. But He's also a good Father and a wise Father. And so there are times where He says, no, Andrew, 
I'm not going to give that to you because you can't see the ramifications of how that's going to impact your life or the lives around you. And, or, you know, Andrew, maybe not yet, but because you're not mature enough yet, Andrew, to actually handle that thing or, or that responsibility or that life situation or whatnot. So, Andrew, not yet. You know, because he is our heavenly father and he's a good heavenly father, we should expect him to say no at times. Because if we don't expect him to say no, then we're, we're thinking that what, what we ask for, we, we always know that it's what's best for us. And just like Levi doesn't realize that Chalky isn't always the best thing for him. Sometimes the things we ask for aren't always the best things for us. And we see this in scripture. We see this with the apostle Paul. He asked for God to take away what, was called, what he called his thorn in the flesh. He asked that a number of times. And a number of times God said, no. And then Paul realized, oh, God said no, because it was actually going to help me trust God more. It was actually going to, I was going to become strong through God in my weakness. And then he praised God for that. But it took him asking and seeking God and God saying no for him to realize like, oh, I actually shouldn't have that removed because God has a bigger plan for me. Or Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, we can't get an even bigger example than this. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he dies, what does he ask God to do? He says, Lord, if it be your will, like, take, take this cup from me. He asks his heavenly Father to, to take away what was coming the next day, his death on the cross. And then he says, but not my will, your will be done. And so this passage of ask, seek, and knock I think it can be really frustrating if we don't have the right picture of who God is. Because I think there are some different ways that people can think of their relationship with God other than God as their Heavenly Father. And I think that that can lead to some frustrations. And so my question is, how would you describe your relationship with God? Would the imagery of the Father to His children be the the way you understand it? Or is there a different way? I think there are a number of ways that people understand their relationship with God other than that image. Um, and we're, I'm just going to highlight two of them. The first is, I think people can think of God as their genie. They think of God as that cosmic vending machine in the sky. And they think, man, if I just ask, seek, and knock, and I punch in the right buttons, I have to get what I ask for. And there's a, a man named Tim Mackey from what's called the Bible Project. Some of you might be familiar with that. But he calls this thinking, he calls it blank check theology. It's basically the idea that, hey, I have a blank check, and I can fill it out with whatever I want, and I can give it to God, and then I'm going to receive whatever I wrote on that check. And that type of thinking comes from people taking a, a passage like this and just ripping it out of context. So let's do that for a second. Let's rip these verses out of context where we take, all right, the Bible says we can ask, seek, and knock, and we're going to receive. And then if we go to Matthew 18, it says, it says this, if two people agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them. So let's rip that out. And then, oh, there's another passage that says, if I have the faith the size of a mustard seed, I can move mountains. So, all right, let's rip that. All right, we have all of these passages in Scripture. And when we rip them out of context... It looks like, hey, I ask, I receive, and that's it. 
That's my relationship to the man upstairs. He's the giver. I'm the taker. I just better ask really good. But God isn't a genie. That's not the imagery Jesus invites us into. He gives us the imagery of a father to his children. Another image that I think people can think of their relationship with God is, you know, God is just that taskmaster in the sky. He's just, he's the big guy. He's the boss. And uh, hopefully he notices me. But, um, you know, I'm going to do what I can. But there isn't really this loving relationship. He's just over all things. So I better, you know, get my job done, do what he asked me to do, and hope that he sees it and, you know, rewards me. And hope that he makes my life a little better. And that type of relationship, it's, it's a contract. It's that boss-to-employee relationship where, you know, the, the boss is in charge and we better do what he says or else we're fired. And I think sometimes we can have that type of relationship with God or we can think that that's what it's supposed to be like. And we can think, you know, well, of course he's going to say no because he's my boss. You know, he's not going to say yes because he doesn't love me the way a good loving father would. And so I'm just not even going to ask. Or, you know, if, you know, he's definitely going to say no because I, I screwed it up last month. Or, you know, I haven't been living for him the way I should. So he's the taskmaster and I'm the slave. And, you know, of course he's not going to put me first. He's not going to want to love me that way. And again, that type of imagery, that type of thinking is wrong. Jesus invites us into this father-son, father-daughter type imagery. And there's just a problem with viewing God as our genie or as our taskmaster because the Bible doesn't talk about God that way. It talks about God in these very personal, loving way of a, of a father to his children. And this is really important for us to realize because if our image of God is different, a couple things are going to happen. One, if God is our genie or our taskmaster, we can't approach him in, in love the way we sh- we're supposed to. Because if he's our genie, we're not going to him out of love. We're not going to him out of trust and dependence. We're going to him as that cosmic vending machine just trying to get what we want. Or vice versa. If he is our taskmaster, we can't approach him in love like we're supposed to. We're going to go before him in this trembling and just hoping like, all right, I, I hope the boss isn't mad at me anymore. And so seeing God as our heavenly father is very, very important. And it's very, very important here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, up until this point, has already described God as his father about a dozen times. And we don't see that until we get to the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is really putting forward this idea that we have to understand as followers of him that we actually have a loving father. He's the God of the universe. And that is kind of mind-blowing. But the other problem is, if we don't see God as our father, if he's a genie or a taskmaster, we're going to have no idea what to do in life when he says no. When we ask for something and when he says no, it's not going to make sense. Or we're not going to understand it correctly. Because if he's a genie and he says no, then it's like, uh, like... That's not how this is supposed to work. Like, I'm supposed to ask and you're supposed to give. And then we start to think, well, maybe I asked wrong. Or maybe I, I just need to do things better. And then he'll give it to me. 
or if he's our taskmaster, then we, it's easy to just think, sit back and think, you know what, of course he's not going to give to me. Of course he's going to say no. I'm not even going to ask. But he's our father. And when we understand that, in life when God says no, we can trust that, you know what, dad understands better than I do. That maybe he sees something that I can't see yet. Or maybe I will never see And so prayer, this idea of asking and seeking and knocking, it's all about prayer. And prayer is all about a loving relationship between the Heavenly Father and His children. And when we understand that, we're going to be able to trust Him. Which means, if we trust Him, it means we'll go to Him asking, seeking, and knocking, knowing He's for us. But we'll also trust Him when He says no. And so this idea of coming to God as our Heavenly Father, I think is so, 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 so important to what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount, but especially when it comes to prayer. Because if we don't understand that, it is going to hinder our understanding and our our desire, I think, to actually talk to our Heavenly Father. All right, how are you guys doing? That's the first little bit of the first passage, all right? Because Jesus now connects it to verse 12. And this part, I think, is, is a head-scratcher the first time you read it. Because Jesus has just talked about prayer and our relationship to our Heavenly Father. And then this is what he says in verse 12. He says, uh, the last little bit there, So in everything, do to others that you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Why in the world is that there next to what Jesus has just talked about? It, just, it seems like Jesus does a 180. What is going on? But Jesus, he talks about, he talks about our relationship with, to God, and now he's talking about what? Our relationship to other people, right? And Have you ever seen that anywhere else in Jesus' teachings where God or Jesus talks about our relationship to our Father and then our relationship to other people? Yeah, he does that a lot. He does that a lot. In a lot of his teachings, that's what he highlights, our relationship with God and our relationship with others. We see that especially in, um, in Matthew 22, which is the Lord's, the, what's called the greatest commandment, which is to, to do what? Love God and to love others, all right? We love God with all that we are, and then we go and we love others as ourselves. It's, it's two sides to the same coin. It's emphasizing the thing that we're, we're meant to do, to love God and to love others. And so it, it doesn't, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus does this, talks about our relationship to God, and then quickly talks about our relationship to other people. But Jesus, this verse, uh, there's a name for it. Uh, a common name that people just call it. It's called the golden, the golden rule. Yes. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Has anyone heard that called the golden rule before? Yeah, that's a pretty well-known, well-known thing. But this rule, I think oftentimes people, when they quote the golden rule, they, they think that Jesus is saying, hey, don't do bad things to other people because I don't want them to do bad things to me. Which makes sense. Like, I don't want people to lie to me, so I shouldn't lie to others. Or, 
I wouldn't want someone to cheat on me, so I'm not going to cheat on them. Or I wouldn't want someone to steal from me, so I'm not going to steal from them. Like, like, I don't like negative things happening to me, so I shouldn't do negative things to others. Like, that, that makes sense, right? But I think Jesus here in the golden rule is saying way more than just avoid doing negative things to people. He's actually saying intentionally do positive things to other people. See, catch what he says. Do to others what you would have them do to you. So if, if I would like someone to be there for me, I should be there for other people. Or if I would like someone to give me a phone call and check in on me, I should do that for other people. Or if I would like to be respected, I should respect other people. See, sometimes people think of the golden rule as just, I'm just going to avoid hurting other people, which is certainly part of it. But Jesus is way more, what he calls us to is way deeper and I think way harder. He's telling us to intentionally go love and bless others. To be proactively, not just not hurting people, but proactively blessing people. And I think that's a really hard thing to do, to proactively go out and love other people the way we're called to, if we don't trust that God is our Heavenly Father. See, this is why I think Jesus connects our relationship to God to the golden rule here. Because if we don't trust God, if we don't think he's going to provide for us, if we're not asking him for that provision, guess who we're going to look towards to provide for us? Ourselves. And it's really hard to love people the way we're supposed to when we're just thinking about ourselves. But when we have assurance of God's love and care, we're freed up to give to others our love and care. You catch that? When we, when we have the assurance that God is our Father and He is for us, not against us, we can then be freed up to say, you know what? I can give you love. I can give you care because I've already received that from my heavenly father. But if God is our genie or our taskmaster and he's not coming through and then we have to provide for ourselves and we just get that tunnel vision and we think about us, ourselves, rather than looking around saying, wow, there's a a world full of needs that I can love and care for. So that's why I think Jesus puts these things together. And so maybe, maybe today, uh, maybe recently, it's, you've just, if you look back on your life, it's like, man, it's been really hard to love other people recently. And there could be all sorts of reasons why that could be. I'm not saying this is the only one. But maybe one of the reasons is you're not trusting God as your heavenly father. You're feeling the pressure that you have to provide for yourself. You're feeling the pressure of like, you're not feeling that the love that we're supposed to from our Heavenly Father. And so it's like, you know what? It's hard to love other people when we're not first being feeling that love from our Heavenly Father. And so maybe that's something that we all just need to process. Like, do I trust God and have that assurance that he loves me? And if so, now I can be freed up to go love other people. So that's the first part that Jesus talks about today. And we have one last little bit. It says, 
verses 13 to 14. And uh, it's, this little bit won't be as long as that first little bit. But uh, again, Jesus is going to share with us another famous, uh, well-known uh, 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 passage. Uh, and it's here in verses 13 to 14. It says this, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Um, this, this passage kind of starts the beginning of the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Up until this point, Jesus has been giving all these teachings about prayer and about loving others, um, about um, not judging others, about uh, adultery, about integrity, about murder. He's just he's done all these different teachings. And now he kind of switch, switches gears and he starts to, to share things that kind of give us a choice of like, who am I in this? Like, if you read from verses 13 to 14 to the end of the chapter, there's a number of things where it's like, oh, Jesus is making me think, am I like this or am I like that? And it's just, it's masterful how Jesus sums up his sermon after he's told us this is how we should live. He's now like, all right, are you going to choose to do that? And this, the verses 13 to 14 is the first metaphor that gets us thinking, am I living the way Am I living for God and for his kingdom, or am I going to choose to reject that? And this metaphor, it's this metaphor of two paths. One is a broad path. It's spacious, and there's a lot of people on it, and it's heading to a broad gate. And then there's another path. It's, it's narrower. It's more confined, and it's leading to a narrow gate. And this, this metaphor, I think, is a very sobering metaphor, because of where those gates open to. The broad gate opens to destruction and the narrow gate opens to life. And there's two things that I think we can draw from this passage. Uh, The first is this. We shouldn't expect that following God will always be easy. Jesus talks about the narrow path is the path that leads to life. And that's the path that he's calling us to as his followers and on the narrow path, it's not always going to be easy. I don't know if you've ever gone hiking and you've hiked on a, like a big broad path where you can see way far ahead of you and there's like no briars or brambles around you. And it's like nice. It's like awesome. But then if you've ever been on a narrow path where it's, there's lots of bends and turns and you're like, where am I going? Um, I've been in some paths like that. I've done some hiking up in upstate New York in the Adirondacks and there's been some, there were some paths that were like, this is awesome. Like I could walk side by side with someone and people could pass us. It'd be great. And there'd be other paths where it would be narrow and it would lead us through um, a field of stinging nettle. Has, Has anyone ever encountered stinging nettle before? I'm sorry for you. Stinging nettle is not fun. It's this plant with these little barbs on them and they, they're just so annoying and pesty and, and it would be you know, it's summertime and you're hiking and you have shorts on. And it's like, well, you just trudge on through and you just deal with the pain. And it's not fun, but that's because it's the narrow path. And sometimes following Jesus is going to be hard. We haven't signed up for a broad path. We've signed up for a narrow path. And I mean, we just, all we have to do is look at to the person who we're saying we believe is God and what he did to figure out that what we've accepted 
is going to be hard. I mean, the guy we choose to follow, Jesus, the God-man, literally went to his death to serve and love other people. That's who we're called to follow. He's our Lord and Savior. And if he's to do that and we're to become like him, then we shouldn't expect that life is always going to be easy. He's going to call us to some things that are going to be tough and that are going to be hard. But the good thing is he's our Heavenly Father. And so he will see us through those hardships. He will provide when we need it. He will be there for us. But the second thing that I think we can take away from this metaphor is this, is that this life is not the end goal. There's an eternal destination ahead of us. In this metaphor, there's the broad path and the narrow path, and they're both heading somewhere. One is to destruction and one is to life. There's an end goal for every single person. When I've done some hiking in that Adirondacks, we would always hike with an end goal in mind. We would hike to a waterfall or a scenic view. Uh, there was one time where we hiked to, there was a, there's an old World War II plane crash in the Adirondacks. And uh, we wanted to go find it. And so we did what's called a bushwhack. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, where you, there's no trail. You just use a compass and a map and you go find it. And we got dropped off by our driver and we're going through the woods. And a few hours later, we realized, huh, we thought we were here on the map. We're actually way over here. Our driver dropped us off at the wrong spot. And so we never ended up at our destination. And there's sometimes in life where we're heading to a destination and we don't get there. But the reality is our lives as a whole, they're all heading to a destination. The question is, which one? There's only two. Which one is it? And so if you're here today, and as we just wrap up, I just encourage us to think about which path are we on. If you're here today and you aren't a follower of Jesus, Jesus makes it clear which path there is. It's the broad path. The destination is not good. The amazing thing, though, is that we have a heavenly father who says, hey, I've died for you on the cross. I love you. I'll forgive you of your sins. Here's the narrow path. You can take it whenever you want. And so if you're here today and you don't have that relationship with God, if you're on the broad path, I'd encourage you to take that step to go to the narrow path, to have a relationship with Jesus, to put your faith and trust in him as the one who died on the cross for your sins. But if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, don't forget that this path we're on, it is narrow. There's going to be stinging nettle in life. There's going to be some pain and suffering, and that shouldn't surprise us. But that's why the imagery of God as our Heavenly Father is so important. Because we can trust Him, we can have assurance in Him that He loves us, and is actually for us. And when we, He says yes in life to the things we ask for, we can praise Him and trust Him. And when He says no, we can still praise Him and trust Him because He is our loving Father. And so if you are a follower of Jesus here today, I'd encourage you to ask, to seek, and to knock, to lean into that relationship, to trust him, because he is our good heavenly father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for coming to earth and dying on the cross and showing us what this narrow path looks like, and for going to heaven and for preparing a place for us. 
Lord, it is so comforting to know that we have that end goal, that end destination of life forevermore. This life is not all there is. And so we can endure the pain here and now. Thank you for showing us who our Heavenly Father is, that he is loving and trustworthy, that we can have assurance in him because he is for us. May you be with anyone here today who's been struggling with their relationship with you. May they turn to you as their Heavenly Father, as a child would turn to their father, in just openness and honesty, seeking and knocking persistently, desiring to just be with you. Thank you for being our Father. Amen.